The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast, the show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about the climate emergency and climate change. And we are, as we say, we are all climate emotions all the time. Uh, and today we have a guest. I'm Ellen, Ellen Kelsey. And we're so glad to have Ellen Kelsey with us. Ellen's a scholar and an environmental communications expert. And today we're gonna to be talking about hope, this idea of hope, the feeling of hope, the concept of hope, research about hope. Um, and we're going to look at it from all different angles, and we invite you to join us for this dialogue. And Pano, do you want to get us started? Mm. Warmly welcome, Ellen, also from my part. I'm very honored to have you have you join us and for the listeners to know uh, this has been a special year for the cooperation between me and Ellen, a Finnish foundation, Kone Foundation, generously funded a residency for Ellen in Finland in the middle of very snowy winter. Mm. So we've been meeting this side of the of the ocean and now now over over Zoom, and there's plenty to talk about and. And because of this emphasis on on eco emotions and climate emotions we have, so uh, would you like Erin to share something of your journey uh, in relation to the, these teams? You have a mm-hmm. already long and winding winding road be, be, behind yes, you. Yes, and I, I maybe I'll start that road in Finland. Uh, it was so wonderful to be there with you, and um, what I really took away from that is I I think. Listeners may not know that Finland is really a hotbed for all of this work around eco-emotions. And, and I think it's very much due to you, Pano, and the incredible networks that you've created between academic communities, um, the fact that there's a whole climate university, which is a networked collaboration across many different institutions that allows for people to participate in uh, you know, academic-based learning around climate for free. Uh, you know, I think that is astonishing. And that work within that work includes work on emotions um, that you were able to bring forward and that has been taken taken up. And so in the time that I was there with you, as, as you know, we were able to speak with journalists, with children's book writers, with academics um, coming from psychology and philosophy and theology, as well as practitioners who are working in the mental health and, and emotions-based fields in a practical way. Um, and, and many teachers and other academics. And so for me, it was to see an artist, you know, collaborating in those ways too, that, that this area of eco-emotions has really, really grown in a very short amount of time to become quite a robust field. And what, what I, many things I took away from that experience. One is the, the deep appreciation for reflection mm. that I think is part of a of ordinary practice perhaps in a Finnish context and is unusual in many other contexts. So almost every meeting that I attended, 
that was uh, organized by someone else, there was time built in for reflection, to walk away, to be on my own, to be outside by myself, to think. And I, I really came away, um, this, this whole tension between action, you know, we have these global urgent issues and we think of them in terms of urgent action. And that, that then creates an urgency discourse that has a lot to do with, we've just got to act and act quickly. And so I think the opportunity to be thinking about these urgent issues in a cultural context that values reflection as an important aspect of how one responds to emergency, I, I think was really profoundly impactful for me um, amongst many other rich conversations. So conversations about pedagogical love and conversations about ideas I had not experienced before. Um, so for all those reasons, very rich. And one of the things that also that came forward is concern about accountability. So if we're talking about hopefulness, and my particular interest is evidence-based hope, um, there can be a real concern, both from youth climate activists and journalists, that we are somehow allowing uh, power to go unchallenged. Mm -hmm. You know, so accountability is somehow missing. So a lot of the conversation ended up talking about how, in fact, a solutions orientation holds power to account. And, and it does that because if you can show, hey, this works here, why the heck don't we have it? Um, you know, it, that's, a very, that's a very powerful argument and uh, one that needs to be put forward. And so since being there, I've now formed a tighter collaboration with the Solutions Journalism Network, the co-founders of that network, a group I've been talking about and recommending for years, but I came away from Finland with a commitment, I need to really work directly with them because we're still in the situation where mm -hmm. only two to 3% of all journalism that we hear about the climate even mentions a solution. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really not where we need to be, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, much Elin, for that very rich account, and of course, good to hear about the positive experiences in in Finland. We can be a bit action oriented here also, but we have the sauna and the woods and the long winters, so perhaps that gives us some some reflection emphasis also. And for for the listeners, I want to share that when I started doing research on environmental education and difficult emotions in the early 2010s, Erin was one of the only researchers who had already worked for many years with that topic. Another would be Maria Ojala, the Swedish researcher who we just met over Zoom last, last week. But so Erin has this very interesting combination of understanding these dark aspects of life, but also emphasizing the evidence-based hope, solutions, journalism, not just focusing on the bad, but also the good good issues. So that's something that I've very much valued in Erin's work and which has influenced my, my work also. But Thomas, listening to us talking about experience in, in Finland, what's what's on your mind? Well, Pano, it's, it's, it's really really just i'm really stuck on what ellen was talking about with you know i was i was trying to think about what's the what's the definition of, of solutions journalism but then as she said you know it's this idea that only a small percent of what we see in terms of journalism is successes and solutions and things like that and so it's just i think it's good for us all and also for the listeners just to reflect on that this we're kind of swimming in the water of this information water that we're swimming in is really full of the problems and very and it's in the, the the stories of solutions are so are so few and far between and so i do think we're in a in a meta in a meta stage here where people are trying to really say hey there is a lot going on 
and we need to talk about that. I mean, I happen to be speaking today at a conference and I'm around a ton of gifted people that are all doing neat and powerful things about the environment. And it's really, it's really inspiring. Um, I'm going to be speaking with a woman named Elena Wood, who's uh, has a TikTok channel called the garbage queen. And she does positive environmental news and she tries to counteract uh, doomism on, on, in the TikTok world with, there is a lot of it. Um, so I, I just think it's, I think it's just helpful to, for us to all to recognize that we've been, we've been steeped in this, in this kind of really dark information for a while. And so I think that, I think in our nervous systems, we get used to it. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about literally what hope feels like and how we activate it and how we can think about that. Cause I think giving the listeners some kind of concrete tips might be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, Thomas, as you're saying that, you know, you said the stories of hope are so few and far between or of solutions, so few and far between. And I think one of the conversations Pano and I have been having is, is about this idea of um, this nuanced understanding that our eco-emotions are quite varied. We have mm-hmm. lots of emotions. And so when we're speaking about hope, it's not that we're in this rah-rah campaign mm-hmm, of constant mm-hmm. yeah. smiles, you know? It's mm-hmm. that hope is actually a very, hope and anger are very activating emotions. <clears throat> when we think something is unjust, we we feel the need to do something about it. And when we feel that that there that we need to go for this thing that we really believe in that's a hopeful feeling that also causes us to act whereas lots of other emotions can be very disempowering can feel very inactivating um, and I think what's so important to me is that these are very real feelings and where I'm challenging is is that it's not that stories of solutions are few and far between it's that we almost never hear about them in fact there are mm-hmm. so many of them uh, but because we have a, a journalistic orientation towards problem identification and we have a academic publishing orientation towards problem identification we have a, mm-hmm. a teaching orientation towards climate science uh, which uses you know a, a measurement of the globe uh, then we end up taking away the idea that there are that they are somehow trivial examples or small examples you know um, that they're outscaled they're, we have a few solutions but the problem is enormous and what I'm really feeling now in my life is in fact great impatience you know I'm often asked about toxic positivity <laughs> and my counter uh, you know I, I was realizing this morning is I really want to talk about toxic negativity. <laughs> That, that is, that's the real issue when I think about it, because I'm often giving evidence-based examples of things that are moving in the kinds of directions we need them to be moving in, and I'm being challenged by someone using a generalized gloom narrative without any detail, you know? And I think, mm. well, at a certain point, we need to really challenge that and say, really? <laughs> no one's doing anything? You know, <laughs> that, that sort of idea is really perpetuated. So for me, hope sits in really recognizing the feelings I am having. But it's, it's creating these safe and important spaces to share the complexity of our feelings. And it's recognizing what's fueling those feelings, you know, are, and, and to what degree am I up to date on what's happening or am I ruminating over something that I'm deeply concerned about and is concerning, but am I up to date on really where we are with that? Or am I fueling, unintentionally, of course, my despair because I'm not up to date? And I think specificity and up-to-dateness is a huge part of hope. 
We, mm. we feel hopeful when we see things changing over time. And if we don't stay up to date, we are just in a malaise of a generalized deep worry rather than what's, where are we actually at? Mm. Very well said. I'm so glad you articulated that. That's something good for all of us to hear. So I'll, I know, Panu, got, you have a thought, but I just, it, now I'm, I'm really, as I'm listening, I'm, I'm really seeing hope as a blind, you know, we have a, it's a perceptual issue. There's a perceptual issue here, or we have a blind spot that we don't realize. Um, that's just, that's just a new, that's a new in- angle for me. So I really appreciate that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that. That um, we had a workshop in Helsinki last week. We can share the link to the recording at the podcast notes where uh, I used the old metaphor of people approaching an elephant with blindfolds. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, just by groping with your hands and trying to say what the, what the thing is. And I sometimes have the feeling that both for anxiety and for hope, that is what happens because those things are so big, complicated and can mean different things for different pe- people. And and so I think some of the arguments are just due, due to that. But there's also the psychological dimension of uh, the temptation of binary thinking in anxious times. We have briefly discussed this with Thomas, at least in some of the episodes. Uh, one author, Jack Adam Weber, calls this hopium and reverse hopium in the context of, of the climate crisis. You know, the, the pressure uh, either to go for the doomism, the reverse hopium, or to go for very, very explicit over-optimism. That would be the sort of hopium dimension. But it's tricky because people use these concepts also in various ways. But with Thomas, we've a lot been discussing sort of the need to try to be patient with each other and try to understand what the other is after also, and not just attacking the other if the use of the concept is somewhat different than what one has got used to. Yeah, it's so true. And I think we are in this period right now, I I believe, on of youth on social media, particularly is where I'm seeing it, is this recognition of doomism as a political um, ploy. So if people, it's sort of Michael Mann, the climate scientist, talks about it as the new form of climate denial. So if you deny a problem, you don't have to act. If it's really too late and we're doomed, you don't have to act. And so I think there is an, an opening up of an of of this uh, desire to to not feed into that narrative either. Um, I, as I'm listening to you, Pano, I'm, it, it is hard because, of course, there's politics always sit around all of this. But the choice to be hopeful, um, so, so for me, hope is actually a choice. It, and it's one that we, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think there's a complexity of, of it that is a collective Thing as well. We know that emotions are contagious and they are shared face-to-face and online. And so our 24-7 media world uh, that is has so little attention to uh, solutions orientation means we're constantly getting that. Um, but, but, but as I'm saying, I think also these things shift. So right now there's a, a much greater awareness of doomism and doomism as a ploy than there was even six months ago. Mm-hmm. And so I find my conversations with youth are different before I was talking about the importance of this, because I know their interest in climate justice action and their own well-being, mm-hmm. now I'm talking about it because they're asking, because they feel manipulated by this doomism. And that's a very mm-hmm. different 
conversation. So again, I think we have to be up to date, up to date on what is happening around climate, up to date what's happening culturally around hope or doom. You know, these things are, that for me is hope sits in shifting. Everything is always shifting. And, mm. and um, I was realizing in my personal life, I know we were thinking about how do we think about hope. I was uh, I, recently in the last year, I've, I've started a new relationship with someone, uh, which was out of, you know, a big surprise to me. But at this age, I'm 60, all kinds of things I am working through that I, you know, working through almost as if I'm a young person, except I'm old, mm -hmm. you know. And um, but what I really realize in that is that I've, I've started to think of this idea of a guardian so, you know, we think of guardianship in terms of ecological, um, certainly coming from Aboriginal communities in Australia, for example, there's guardians who are looking after that forest. You know, they, they are guardians. They're here in, in the Pacific Northwest. Many Indigenous communities have that official role as guardian. And I was realizing for me around hope that that idea of, of whatever is most deeply concerning us, in a way, we need someone else to be our guardian to say, I hear how worried you are about this. I hear you and I will hold that worry. I will hold that for you because otherwise it's not possible for me to move on and to look at what things are moving in the directions I need them to go in because I'm so worried that if I don't keep raising the alarm, it'll get lost. Mm -hmm. And so I've started to really think of hope in a, as a collective in a different way that that we can take on different roles with hope so i can sometimes be the guardian in my relationship to say i hear this thing that that feels so broken and i will hold it so you don't have to keep telling me i will hold it for you and as i'm holding it then that allows you a little freedom to look at which things are moving in the kinds of directions that feel right to us that that you can spend some time with because you don't have to keep holding the alarm over here and, and, in, and in that way, I think it's, it's fascinating how useful that can be in both my personal life, but also it's metaphorically in, in the work I do. Because mm -hmm. if I only show these positive examples and somebody is a climate justice activist who is trying to keep the alarm, it's back to this accountability thing. Someone needs to hold it. And within one person, I think you can't do it all. You need somebody taking turns in those roles. And, and that's why I think these collectives, and I'm very encouraged by Pano and I have been talking about, you know, self-care and collective care, communal care. Part of communal care is shifting roles so that we can share our deepest feelings and we can share what is moving in directions that we need to be thinking about and, because that's where we find the encouragement that empowers us and the pride that we feel of the successes we've made. I think um, just a couple of points. Uh it's implicit uh, in our conversation, but there's isolation is such a big problem with all of these really people struggling. And so, mm -hmm. and I think the, uh, the the lack of hope and the doomism really is also bred by a sense of isolation. So, you know, implicit in what you're saying, the guardianship is this connection and a relationship. And so that's just a good takeaway for us all. The, the, unless we're consciously trying to do some deep self-reflection for the most part, if we're if we're isolated, it's typically a red flag that we're we're not taking care of ourselves enough, or we're not connecting. Because mm -hmm. invariably, you know, there's a hope hopelessness um, curve, and if I'm with a bunch of people, our curves will balance out, and I'm, I can help someone who's a little lower than I am, and they can someone who's doing better than me can help me, and so it's that group process. Um, 
And I just also wanted to say, in terms of the Guardian, I wanted to, there's a, some, a, two, um, two environmental leaders in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, um, uh, Gene Roy and Dick Roy, and they're, they've been doing environmental work for many, many years in Portland. And, and for years, they had a Practice of Hope workshop. Um, and this is back 20, 10, 20 years ago. And so I, I see them as guardians, guardians. They would actually have these workshops in, 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 in Portland where people would come. And I, and I, I was very much influenced by their work. Um, and they had an image of hope as the one's highest vision of the possible was what they talked about. And that was something that's always helped me. Um, and I think they were holding space for hope when there was less evidence of, of solutions. And now I think, you know, the, the highest vision of the possible is it's the highest vision of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not even the possible. So, mm-hmm. so a couple of things, just recognizing Dick and Jean uh, for their work and for all the elders that have been, and p- people that have been holding space in this for many years uh, and the relationship piece. And then again, this evidence, we have evidence in fact. So it's like fact-based hope, I guess you can say. What's hope for you, Pano? Mm. Thanks, thanks for asking. I sometimes done also sort of philosophical work on varieties of interpretations of, of hope. And for example, Darren Webb's article about modes of hoping is very useful in that regard. We can put a link to that at the podcast notes. He's taking an interdisciplinary approach on various modes of hoping, meaning how it manifests in practice. And that's something I'm interested about, not just the abstract ideas, but how it manifests in, in, in practice. And there's a sort of determined hope and critical hope of those categories uh, pretty close to, close to myself. So there's a certain open-endedness and a type of grit or finish sisu. Um, but fun- fundamentally, I've been often emphasizing a meaning-centered interpretation of hope. Uh, often quoting Vaclav Havel, who has a great, great quote on on this ho- connections between hope and meaning. So I think that's one one facet of what people sometimes talk about when they use the word 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 hope. Uh, in the Finnish context, I've both been emphasizing hope and also understanding for despair. So I've got this sort of three-level use of terms where hope and despair are part of the seasons of the mind or seasons of the soul, to quote Norwegian climate psychologist Per Espen Stockness. And then hopelessness as a total lack of meaning. That's where the danger comes in. But just commenting also on this fluctuation or oscillation thing that you, Elin and Thomas, both hinted towards. I think that's very, very normal, especially in time times like this. And but that doesn't mean that the hope is completely away either. And some languages, like French, have interesting etymological things uh, related to this. That hope, hope and despair may be very intimately co- connected. But for me, it really comes back to back to me meaning. That, that would be the most fundamental aspect aspect of, of it. And you mentioned Elin that you've been working with social media influencers and, and young young people. And uh, often with Thomas, we've been thinking about that we should invite also more people young of age, not just young of young of mind like you you Elin Elin most definitely are. But what's your other observations among among young people and, and social media? It would be very very interesting to hear. You already shared some of that. Yeah, and I I mean. And I think that what's 
what's fascinating there and, and what you're very well familiar with is that for, I think it's important to remember that 42% of people on earth are 25 years of age or younger. So we live on a planet where the largest demographic is young and that um, climate justice is a high, high value and not just climate change, but climate justice or so social justice combined with climate change. And so all of those conversations exist within that framing. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the assumption to start. And around justice, there is, of course, outrage because we, we see injustice. And so I, th I think that these, these primary emotions of, of anger and, um, you know, there's, there's work around institutional betrayal, and you're, you're mm -hmm. well familiar with that, um, mm -hmm. that, that those ideas of, of betrayal are, are important to keep in mind because it's all about trust. If, you are, if you're trying to find meaning and you want to make sure that the things you find meaningful are actually meaningful, <laughs> you know, so therefore it, uh, the questions of transparency and am I being, uh, you know, am I appropriately cynical or skeptical or these sorts of things. I think there's a lot of um, why I think social media is important in all of this is that there's an aspect of social media that is around um, I mean, there's all kinds of challenges with social media. I don't mean to sound naive, but but in, in its strongest sense, it's people being able to be more disclosing, you know, here, here's kind of who I authentically am. So we see, for example, in the Intersectional Environmentalist, which is a group of social media influencers working in climate change, they're very, very actively choosing ranges of identities that they may wish to bring forward. So they may have gender identities, uh, food preference identities, um, job identities, uh, drag identities, you know, all of these identities coming forward. So saying, and I think that's really opening up this idea that I can come as my authentic self, no matter what age I am, and engage in these justice issues that matter to me, which is quite a long way away from here are the top five things we all have to do. Mm -hmm. You know, this sort of uniform idea that science is telling us, and now, now we all do these five things, which feels very inauthentic. I think so for me there's an authenticity that's coming from the uh, intersectionality and positionality that's really present in social media um, that that is really identifiable and to me that's exciting because when you start looking there are climate engagement groups for social justice issues in ev every kind of identity I can possibly think of um, and so I think people can find their home there. And then that's very motivating because we find meaning in the things that are calling to us. And I often say to youth, you know, the things you would do, even when someone's trying to actively stop you from doing it, that's probably where you want to spend the most time, you know, because <laughs> that's going to take you. Um, and then you're motivated because these issues are so difficult to stay with. And to your earlier point, Thomas, when you're talking about what are we bathing in, um, that I think the contagious nature of this really matters. I notice with students who take solutions-based courses, they often come back and say, can I take that course again, audit, uh -huh. because I just need to be in the presence of others who are actively working with evidence-based hope, and I can't find them in my ordinary life. And so I realize it has to become a practice, a network, communities, movements, um, and in many ways it is already, uh, you know, um, but, but that's important. And, the other thing I'm thinking about with meaning making is we often talk about hope as a future orientation, but in the palliative care world, we talk about hope as a meaningful present. Um, and I, I think 
I try to use my own language to say, because people have done this, now we're here with climate change. You know, these, these positive things have happened because people did these things 20 years ago or 10 years ago or are still doing them now, rather than saying it's all ahead um, as, a, as a future possibility. I'm much more interested in a current reality and how we then amplify that in the directions we want to be going. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is really great. Um, we're coming toward, we're coming, coming toward closing, but we've touched on, as usual, many, many things, many points, um, and we'll, we'll make a bunch of links and things like that. And this is an ongoing process. I know you all have some closing thoughts. My, I, I was walking this morning and I, I really wanted to also put a good point, a good word in for hopelessness, actually, to be a little bit counter, um, because I think hopelessness is a moment of growth. I've been thinking about times, I think anyone who's achieved anything has had moments when they felt hopeless. And I think that's, that's a signal that we need to change our tactics or we need to try something different and it's a signal for growth. So there's, a, there's another angle here. I don't necessarily think uh, hopelessness is lack of meaning, but that's one way to think about it. But it's also, it's lack of a path. It's lack of a, of a, it's lack of a, a way to move forward. And I think when we, have those moments of hopelessness it's a signal that we have to accommodate some new reality whether it's in our life our relationships our work our academics our creativity so the, the you know i think any anybody who's achieved the, the, we talk about the the, the 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 researcher that leaves the lab and is stuck and then has that great breakthrough so we also have to make friends with hope moments of hopelessness because it's a signal so that's a that's an interesting way that to think about hopelessness as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll add that to the mix. Um, mm. But how, how would we go forward, Panu? What do you think here as we kind of wrap up? Mm. Yeah, this is in interesting. And again, comes to the different uses of con concepts and my frame of hope, despair, hopelessness. That's one angle and requires a certain definition of these terms and other ones may be used. And we really want to be cosmopolitan here, here, of course. And sometimes the metaphor of whether you feel that there is a dead end has been used to explore dynamics of, 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 of hope and at least the ability to desire that there would be a way forward. I think that captures some of the essence of hope. But just to let listeners know also, Erin was mentioning the need for movements and communities and such, and, and she's been very active in also co-producing these. We'll put links on the podcast web, web, website, but there's an educational network called Existential Toolkit for climate justice educators for good news about oceans there's this whole website and movement called ocean optimism where erin has been working working a lot so i'm encouraging people to take a look at her, her website which also has links to her fabulous children's books that i've been reading and translating into my my kids in in finland also so that's the that's an artistic dimension we haven't touched upon very very much here but i'm very grateful of this opportunity to to walk in this most important territories but what's what's on your your mind erin as we are drawing towards the close of this discussion oh, thank you both for your kind words and this really interesting conversation and i i guess thomas started us by talking about a walk outside and um so i think for me a lot of my own personal hope sits in the place that we are one of 8.7 million other species on earth and they have extraordinary agency and resilience and that i think often in our conversations about What's happening on the planet 
we can become very human focused, which is appropriate and understandable. And, and we, we have huge responsibility. And it's also true that there is incredible uh, resilience going on all of the time. And, you know, to, to hold that frame and realize I am, I am, I am in some ways not very important <laughs> and in other ways very, uh, very important, uh, you know, I, there's something about that I find very hopeful, you know. And, and again, that, that when we are in those moments of hopelessness, that our pregnant moments of, of this thing is not working for me, I, I think that we need others to help us shift beyond that, to see a way that we couldn't see. And, and again, there's so much research now that shows the time we spend in nature is just extraordinarily important to that, both in terms of our feelings, but also in terms of our, you know, watching spring come again. You talked about seasons, Pano. Um, you know, watching um, trees have, the reason they have uh, new leaves is because they actually have, uh, you know, what are those cells, those cells that we have at birth are actually on the ends of their limbs. You know, they are literally being stem cells. They're literally being reborn every spring. And I, I think just these kinds of ideas, they're very important for us holding in terms of we are not alone in our resilience, that we are part of a, a living, breathing planet. And it's very fitting that we heard your dog barking in the background. It's it's with this this perfectly. And if somebody would do research of how many lives dogs have rescued in times of existential despair, that would be a huge number. If anyone mm. could could find that out. Yeah. But then, thanks, Ellen. That's very very fascinating. Well, yeah. Thank you very much, Ellen. I think you're a true you're a true uh, science communicator, and it's been really uplifting to have this dialogue. And I hope the listeners have have enjoyed it as well. And so this is Climate Change and Happiness. You can find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com. And uh, we'll be publishing every two weeks. And we look forward for more dialogue. And good luck, everyone, and have a great day. Take care. Thanks.